ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take you all the way down in New Orleans this time. Competition is Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Hard in the Paint with David Grubb. Joining me today is Chrissy Freud, who covers LSU and the Tennessee Titans for USA Today, and also writes on the NFL Draft for the Draft Network and, the, and Pro Football Network. Chrissy uh, was on the Hard in the Paint radio show before, uh, and she has a great follow on Twitter uh, um, to get some great inf- NFL information. Chrissy, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's good to be on again. Good to have you. Um, this has been, and, and just like pretty much every NFL offseason, the quarterbacks have been the story. Um, trades, teams competing to get that top spot in the draft, which most feel will be Trevor Lawrence, um, who's been the presumptive number one pick for it seems like three years now. In your mind, first and foremost, is this – as deep a draft at quarterback as some folks think it is, or is there a big gap between what we would consider the elite, maybe those first three round quarterbacks and then what's, what's to follow? Yeah. I mean, me personally, I think that Zach Wilson and Trevor Lawrence are extremely close. I think it's pretty much by a hair. And I think that everyone else, like there's, there's a significant drop off, but at the same time, it's not really like a significant, significant drop off. And the other thing too, is that I think that there's really a lot of hidden gems in here. Whenever I was making my rankings personally, there were so many guys that I went back and forth on because when you, when you rank quarterbacks like I do when you're so invested in this uh, position as I am you watch all these guys and you see their highs and lows and you kind of get an idea of where their ceiling is and then all of a sudden they'll drop off and then somebody will come back up and do something that you didn't expect and then somebody like Kellen Mond oh my goodness I (laughs) at the beginning of my career um, that was that was a guy that I just knocked repeatedly like I just never just never found anything good to say about him and then in 2020 he made me eat my words and I saw him at the senior bowl one I mean there were still some inconsistencies just with him as far as a passer, but I gained so much more appreciation for him just as a dual threat quarterback in the modern era in general. And so you have a guy like that, that impresses you that if he can continue uh, just this upward momentum that that he's shown in 2020, if he builds off that and it's only up from here, then he's, something that I never imagined he would be. And then Kyle Trask was somebody that was at the top of my rankings for so long. And then he just had that terrible dip in the last three games. And I still kind of kept him up top for a while in my rankings. And then the more that I went back and looked at the film and just really studied those games more and studied him more, I just had a lot more question marks. I wasn't so sure this is someone I could bet on quite as much, but then, so you have those two. And I mean, I have them pretty separated in my rankings. A lot of people have Trask above Mond and by a, a pretty considerable amount and their rankings. And I, I mean, I'd like to think that I'm right, but at the same time, it kind of, well, before I go to sleep at night, I kind of start thinking about things like that. Cause you just never really know. How did you get into evaluating quarterbacks? Because this is the most difficult position to project from college to the NFL. Um, so why would you take on this brutal <laughs> uh, <laughs> assignment of trying to diagnose and project Uh, what these young men will become in three to four years. Well, I have a really weird analogy for you, and there's no way to put it to where it sounds normal, but I'll go ahead and say it anyway. So I actually started uh, my first career interest that I still am somewhat involved in was showing dogs. And whenever you show dogs, you have, they call it the breed standard. And so they breed the dogs and show the dogs and develop the dogs in a way that's supposed to match this specific standard. And there's like, different there's different things in the standard it's like what the head's supposed to look like like different curves in the school like it gets very intricate um like turn of stifle there's all these really weird terms and they're trying to match it uh just as specifically as possible and in a really weird way quarterback analysis is somewhat the same because you have uh mobility upper body mechanics lower body mechanics mental processing stuff like that so it's just I guess I just like the analytics of things and just the intricacies of things. And then whenever I shifted over and decided that I was really interested in covering football when I was 16, when I started my career, I think it was just kind of in 
the same realm, like I said, in that very weird way of just evaluating things and wanting things to a certain standard. And so I, I think I was in English class and I, we had this eight page paper and we could write about anything. And I, I barely knew anything about the quarterback position just in general. I knew a good bit about football. And so I wrote this eight page essay on Zach Mettenberger and I really, I got really into it. I was really dedicated to it. And um, so I, I kind of forced myself to learn a lot about this. And I came out of that assignment. I was like, wow, I think I have a pr pretty good grasp of that, which I mean, that's just that's just the beginning. And obviously Zach Mettenberger didn't end up being the quarterback I thought he would be. So that's unfortunate, but um, yeah. And so I just kind of fell in love with it. And then as, as I continued to, to write and after I got my first gig and all these gigs at first were unpaid, right. um, whenever you're focusing on one or two quarterbacks, you have to learn the history of the position, the history of the position at the school, the scheme they run. And the, I mean, the more that you get into it and the more that you have to study it as a writer, you're almost kind of forced to learn all these things. And I just found it to be the thing that I was most interested in. And I um, just g had a lot of appreciation for it and just kept going. And here we are now. What's the most difficult part when you start going through this um, and you're trying to equalize things um, for, you know, all the variables that are there, competition, talent around the, the quarterback and what they don't have. When you're doing that, how difficult a process is it? And what are the kinds of elements that are vital to you when making your evaluations of a quarterback? Well, when you first start out, if you're anything like I was, it's all about the flashiness that it, I got severely hung up on that in the beginning. It was like, like how tall is he? How big is he? How much is his arm strength? Cause that's the stuff that's very easy to see. It's very noticeable and it jumps off to you and it makes you go, wow. Like they have one good game with a few good plays and suddenly you find them to be very good. Like people like Brock Osweiler, maybe. Um, so in the first year or so of my career, I got really hung up on that. And I think that a lot of the guys that were kind of my front runners, um, focusing mainly on the NFL and they were not actually that good. Like I go back to Zach Mettenberger, but it was impressive to watch because he can, he's a gunslinger. He can sling the ball and he's huge. He's like six foot five. I want to say he was somewhere around like two thirty-five or something like that um, in the NFL. But the things that are harder to appreciate and that are harder to recognize until um, you get into it a little bit more are just the things like, like mental processing, noticing if they get stuck on one read, um, noticing how they can improvise and then finding out the, the differences between escapability and mobility. Like, can he just evade pressure? Or is he actually a playmaker in his own right? And is he a playmaker in his own right, but can he still throw the ball? And another thing to look at is gadget players. And those guys have to be separated because not everybody is going to be the next Taysom Hill. Um, and I, I find myself when I look at that is before I, I sell a guy as, Oh, he could be the next uh, Taysom Hill or oh he's a gadget player you have to look at can he throw the ball or is he just this guy that's kind of average across multiple positions that just kind of on the field wherever he can get on the field and there's there's differences and there are guys that fall into uh, both categories the other thing you have to look at is just supporting cast in general how how good are his receivers and is he throwing his receivers open or are they diving to catch the ball because he has bad ball placement? Um, stuff like that. It's a lot harder to understand. I think it just over time, uh, just watching, watching more film, uh, learning as much as you can, you, you kind of learn to recognize those things a little bit more as time goes on. But I think that early on when you get started in this, it's very hard to see. And I think that um, myself, and I think that a lot of other people, whether they'll admit it or not are still growing and I, this is a hard position to evaluate. You can sit here for hours and hours and hours and the NFL draft, the way that it goes, the order that these quarterbacks are taken, maybe nothing that we imagined. And in the next five, 10 years, um, the, the order in which we rank them could be totally different because you see it happen all the time. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, you go back to the famous class with Eli Manning and Philip Rivers and Ben Roethlisberger. I mean, if we redid that now, Manning wouldn't have been the first of those guys to go. Mm -hmm. it just, you know, it's just in, in retrospect, we do figure out more. And it's, it is such a difficult position. It just is like you, the things that you can't measure, like you said, the ability to process um, just the courage and, you know, <laughs> that it takes to play in that position. Um, they are so difficult. And we watch teams fail year after year in trying to find a franchise quarterback. Is it, does the college game in your mind prepare quarterbacks adequately for the next level or are the offenses and the talent, the way talent is utilized, does it make it too easy 
in a lot of cases for college players. And it makes the adjustment to the NFL where those windows are tighter, where you do have to throw guys open far more often. Um, and, and a lot of times just trust that that receiver is going to make that play. Uh, do you see that as an issue for quarterbacks? I mean, in a way, I think that if you're at a college with a bad supporting cast, you're almost better off because if you can thrive there, then you're probably going to have an easier adjustment. Um, I think it depends on the scheme that's being run. I think it depends on how many NFL concepts you have uh, within your offense, your level of competition. There's a lot of different factors. So I think it's really just school by school, schedule by schedule, and then different coaches are obviously going to be better than others. So I think it's a, it's a number of factors. So it's hard to answer that question with just a clear yes or no, because there's so much of a gray area there. So I would, I mean, I would say yes and no, which really does depend. Yeah. I guess my thing is, like you said, you, you watch an offense, let's say like LSU's from last season that had a lot of NFL type concepts and the questions that you could have about Joe Burrow and saying, well, does he's got all these NFL players around him and all those things in his film. I think you could see the gap fillers. Like you said, the ability to move on the run um, mm -hmm. and throw accurately, the ability to extend plays, the ability to hang in the pocket and take a hit and still throw it accurately. All those things that fill in showed up on the film, even with that overwhelming amount of talent for a guy like, let's say, a Trey Lance who mm -hmm. plays on a, a lower level at North Dakota State, um, that level of competition, the big thing why he's risen up so many boards and is in the top five among prospects just about anywhere you look is because of what he's been able to do with what he's had around him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Uh, coming from North Dakota State, the supporting cast is definitely going to be a factor. And whenever whenever I look at quarterbacks and analyze quarterbacks, which I would hope that most other people do too, is you have to make sure that you zero in on their individual performance. Because I think there's a lot of people out there who like to look at stat lines and how good is this team overall. And uh, once again, quarterback wins are not necessarily a stat. I mean, all to me, some stats and within the stat line are reflective of certain abilities but at the same time they can also lie to you and I think that you mentioned Trey Lance and that's one thing too is I know his completion percentage I want to say it was just under 67 uh, percent I wrote the rankings up today so some of this stuff's still fresh in my mind but um that I mean that's it's not bad but it's also not reflective of how accurate he actually is because if you look at the film um he looks a lot more accurate and that kind of brings me back to Joe Burrow in a way because um I was actually talking to his brother about the drop rate the other day uh, between the 2018 and the 2019 season. There's so many people that want to look on and they're like, Oh, well, Joe Burrow improved so much between these two seasons. Like he got so much more accurate, yada, yada, yada. But in reality, um, I noticed in practice snack games. And I think a lot of people would, if they went back and rewatched the games with this in mind is that the receivers got so, so much better. And I, I think that a lot of credit to that goes to Joe Brady and Joe Brady brought so much to this team, but I think that everything has always been there for Joe Burrow mentally. And thank goodness that he was able to come off the bench from Ohio state and transfer and get his shot because it's, it's horrifying to me just to imagine if he had never, <laughs> never been discovered. And it makes me wonder about how many other guys uh, just across the nation throughout the years, have been have been like that but yeah I think that it just it comes down to um, mental capacity and then just whenever you analyze quarterbacks if you're going to look at the stat line okay but make sure that you look at at the film and then zero in on them specifically and and note what they're doing specifically note their mechanics upper body mechanics lower body mechanics accuracy uh, what they're doing mentally and the one thing that I wish that I could do which obviously when I do interview quarterbacks ahead of the draft I'll ask them these questions but the only thing that we really can't tell from the film is sometimes you'll see a guy make a weird decision or move a certain way that you don't quite understand. You kind of wish you could ask him a question about that. But other than that, I think that's pretty much covers it. How, how more, how much more difficult was it this year in covering teams and trying to just um, evaluate quarterback play um, in a COVID um, world and, and how have coaches adjusted to this too um, you know, and scouts on the NFL level in not having the same kind of windows to evaluate players. Yeah, I think it's been a lot harder um, for one, just just watching them in general, like you're kind of just up in the press box and you can't really get field level, which I mean, that's not something that I typically do anyway, unless we're in practice, which I had no access to practice anywhere at all this year, except for I mean, I think the senior bowl 
up in the stands where the media area was, was about as close as I got to watching a quarterback at ground level this year, which really sucked, but it is what it is. Um, yeah. So, I mean, just the, the literal aspect of being up in a press box and everyone's so much smaller and you can't see uh, certain things as well as one thing. And I think that there's a lot of stuff that you do see in practice of players um, that's reflective of who they are that I was unable to see uh, this year. So really just going back and just utilizing wh- whatever tape that you have. And then um, that, like I said, the senior bowl, I think helped a lot and being able to be kind of closer and actually uh, being able to get a couple guys at like, like the ledge, like the bottom level of the stands and talk to them face to face. That was the first time I've been able to talk to a player face to face and gosh, probably a year, somewhere around a year, maybe a little over a year, actually. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's definitely come with its challenges. And I think that we kind of saw a wacky year uh, just in general because of the way that preparation was. There were some teams that are usually super, super good that were not quite as good. And some teams that kind of came out of the woodwork. And I think a lot of that had to do with just um, the, the lack of in-person stuff and how weird this off season was with the COVID. Before we get into the rankings, I wanted to ask you one more thing about the players who did opt out, you know, like a Jamie Newman, um, who, you know, opted out of the season and declared for the draft. I don't think it affects too much with the way teams perceive them as athletes, but just not having the repetitions, losing out on a year of attempts. And we know that quarterbacks who had, tend to have more attempts in college tend to do better more quickly in the NFL. How does it impact those kinds of players' development? Yeah, I think it goes both ways. Um, One thing that was really sad to me to see is that I think that there were a handful of uh, quarterbacks and certainly other players in general that um, didn't opt out. And then because of going through this this tough year, and I think that no one except for them will ever truly understand the challenges and the intricacies the way that they that they can. um, Some of them, I think that they kind of made their draft their draft stock go down, which is extremely unfortunate because there were some players that I was covering in particular that were set to go around the first or second round. And now we look at them and they're like seventh round or undrafted free agent, which I think is totally unfair. But I mean, I see both sides of the debate on that. And as far as the repetition goes, yeah, there's nothing that's going to totally replace a game. But I mean, we have to also respect the health factors and what their uh, living situation may be, what their personal life holds stuff like that and then the other thing too is like I said you can't replace a game environment but at the same time like that guy who opts out can immediately start draft prepping and do other things to uh, make sure that he stays in the game and is still improving Uh, but yeah just a really unfortunate situation all around with that I think let's start with your rankings and Trevor Lawrence is the presumptive number one. You said at the start of the show that that Zach Wilson is closing that gap. Um, what is what are people liking more about Zach Wilson, or are there starting to be chinks found in the armor of Trevor Lawrence? Well, this is the thing: is I, if I'm not mistaken, which if I am, anyone can feel free to tell me about it. I believe that I was the first person to publicly say that I believe that Zach Wilson is better than Trevor Lawrence, which is which is why I think that I caught so much flack on Twitter because I was honestly just kind of appalled at the amount of negative response that I got. How many people just absolutely ripped into me over it? Um, but yeah, the the thing about that is I feel like a lot of people took that with me. And I think that a lot of people take that with some of the other people that put Wilson ahead of Lawrence is to some to some people when they see that they're like, oh, my goodness, like they're disrespecting Trevor Lawrence because he's a generational talent. And now you're putting this guy over him. And then there's also just I get the general vibe that a lot of people think that I'm like implying that there's some huge gap between them. I'm not. I went back and forth between this uh, quite a bit. There's a lot of, as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of players within my rankings that may have a bit of a significant gap, but I've gone back and forth between the four of them just because it's been so hard uh, to tell. But I mean, with Zach Wilson, I see a lot of Patrick Mahomes in his game and there's very little that he does wrong. And whenever we look at in terms of accuracy and ball placement and stuff like that, he throws his receivers open and his supporting cast is not nearly as good as Trevor Lawrence's is. And when we look at the throws he's making, um, it's not like the receiver has seven steps on the defender. They're usually right there down the sideline and you're throwing into like a microscopic little tiny window and he makes it happen no matter what, even if the throws off platform. And there's just that when I look at both of these guys, I mean, they're rare players. And it's it's uh, I, I think that it could go either way. 
in terms of who has the better NFL career long-term, my personal pick is Wilson. And part of the reason why I say that is, I mean, I've, I've explained this all on paper. It's on my Twitter. People can go find it is I kind of have an issue with people describing Lawrence as a generational talent. I respect him. I think that he's, he's an elite quarterback and I think that he's going to have a phenomenal NFL career, but I can't help but think about some of the times, some of these games, like whenever they played LSU and he was totally outperformed by Joe Burrow, like it wasn't even close. Um, so whenever you want to tag a player as generational and say he's going to become one of the di- most dynamic players for years to come, it's just kind of hard to shake that little feeling whenever you see people like that, because I feel like a lot of people are putting Lawrence on the same level of people like Joe Burrow. And if that's the case, then why is he getting so badly outplayed by Joe Burrow in instances like this? Yeah, you look at, Trevor Lawrence's last three college football playoff games, his completion percentage was just over 58%. Put up over 300 yards a game, but that's mostly boosted by last year against Ohio State, a game they lost. And then only one touchdown, just over one touchdown per game, when his season averages 66% completions and two two and a quarter touchdowns per game for his career. Mm-hmm. Against, those, against these teams with aggressive front sevens, that's LSU, that's Ohio State. And having also the secondaries that make your receivers have to work. That's LSU, that's Ohio State. DB, those are the two DBUs in this country. He struggled. And and I also, you didn't see, and I know this is something that it's hard to quantify, but you didn't see the same type of thing where it was, we're playing for him. Like you saw out of a Cam Newton or a Jameis Winston or Joe Burrow or Tim Tebow or whatever, where the team seems to be elevated by the quarterback himself. Clemson is felt feels much more like a machine rolling. And Trevor Lawrence is a guy who's very good, but there have been a lot Mm -hmm. of very good quarterbacks who've come through Clemson over these last few years. Oh yeah. I mean, there's been a lot of very good quarterbacks that have come through the SEC in general. And when you look at how many of them have actually gone on and produced in the NFL. That number is very small in comparison to what they were projected or what we believe they could have been. I, yeah, I, Trevor Lawrence was always kind of suspect to me. I, I, I mean, as, as far as just being generational when they talk about, and even when they compared him to Andrew Luck, we have to remember Andrew Luck didn't live up to what in the time that he was there did not live up to being the generational quarterback that people expected. It usually comes out of places that we don't typically expect these guys to come from i.e tom brady (laughs) yeah exactly that's that's the thing that i always say is i mean we can sit here and do all this analysis and go by the books and everything but at at the end of it all like there are going to be a lot of surprises uh both in under the radar players who come out and end up being something we never thought they could be and then the whole like top of the first round not producing the way that you thought that they would or just becoming simply average game manager type. I mean, Patrick Mahomes was a reach at the time. This guy oh, yeah. who had transferred and people were talking about like Kansas City was taking a risk. Um, yeah, I, w- I, d- I would say that they probably don't feel that way anymore. <laughs> no, no, they're good. They're good. They've given him plenty of reasons to stay. Uh, where do Justin Fields and Trey Lance fall for you in comparison to, to Zach Wilson and Trevor Lawrence? How far apart are they from each other and how far are they from that top two? Well, I currently have them at three and four. I have Fields at three and I have Lance at four. Um, As far as Lance goes, I think that he's still a guy that's just, it's easy to be skeptical of him. You know, that you had the one game season, um, just stuff like that. The, the like level of competition that he's playing against. And then also because, I mean, he's not like in the taste of Hill category of like gadget player quarterback, but I mean, he's, Um, One thing that me and his high school coach were talking about the other day is he's a quarterback with like a linebacker mentality. He's a little bit different. He runs very physically and he's a playmaker in his own right. Um, And I think, I think that he's a pretty solid passer. Like I said, I think that he's more accurate than his um, completion percentage reflects. And he had 28 touchdowns, zero interceptions. I don't think I've ever seen a quarterback with a stat line. Uh, like that but there's I mean there's still some things I'd like to see him improve on as a passer and I think that we're just gonna have to actually see him at the NFL level until uh, just kind of the other crowd can start to buy into him and as far as fields goes I mean I think that he's a good overall passer and I think he's very explosive runner 
I think that the athlete that he is is phenomenal. I think that it's uh, it's hard to compare and find someone who uh, tops him just in that category alone. But there's there's just some some things just every great once in a while in his decision making. I think that there's some instances where he kind of puts himself into maybe a tougher situation than he had to. Uh, so I would like like just like to see him be a little bit more quick and a little bit more uh, decisive. But like I said, this is a really athletic guy, and if he can create plays on his own, he can almost make up for that so I'm not saying that he doesn't need to fix that but he he can kind of switch over to this so he's going to do what you need him to do and therefore it's not as big of a problem as if he was not as athletic as he is Mac Jones falls at fifth on most people's boards um that's where he is on mine too (laughs) is how much do you worry about Mac Jones as being one of those products of the Alabama bounty of riches did you see enough out of him and, and against enough good competition to, to, to um, believe that he is in that mold of Hertz and, and Tua. Yeah. It's, it's funny because I mean, you look at this and we think about how Tua Tungabeloa was and how elite he was and what he brought to the table. And Mac Jones to me is just as good of a player, if not perhaps even better, but in a totally different way. And the thing about him, though, is that I feel like a lot of his success comes from repeti- repetition and training and from what he brings to the table mentally, whereas Tua, it's more just he has a naturally quick release. He can naturally evade pressure in a way that can't be taught. Um, with Mac, I mean, you're not going to get a guy that's going to – he even told me this. He said, I'm not going to run around and try to, like, overtake big NFL defenders because that's just simply not in my game. And another thing that came up in conversation is – part of the reason why I think why he came to the senior bowl. And one of the things that he's really been trying to work on and improve upon um, is he still believes he has some mechanical flaws, but I mean, that's one thing that I really like about him is because how often do you have a national championship quarterback that is not only going to tell you, Hey, I still need to improve, but this is exactly what I don't like about myself and I'm going to fix it. And it's not, it's not just that to me. It's the fact that he can say that and that he has a dedication to improving it and that he wouldn't be saying that if he wasn't committed to improving it and that if it wasn't going to change. And so I think, but I think he doesn't give himself enough credit for um, just his mental processing, just that in general. And one thing I think he's been committed for quite a bit is just really quick decision-making. And I think that that's saved him a lot. And I think that whenever he went on to the senior bowl and is playing with a totally different supporting cast and he's still far and away the best quarterback there, that goes to show you that he is more than his receivers. Because I think that's something that's so hard for Alabama quarterbacks in general is because they have such a phenomenal team year in and year out. It's hard to kind of separate yourself and say, hey, like, I'm still I'm still this guy. I don't necessarily need these people to prove that I am this guy. But it's it's hard because I feel like a lot of analysts out there are still going to look at it and go, oh, well, it's Alabama. So how much do we really know? Uh, who comes in at six for you um, on your list? I actually have Kellen Mond there, which I, if you would have told me that I would have Kellen Mond at number six on my list um, ahead of the 2020 season, I would have laughed at you. But um, I, I feel like I've seen enough from him in terms of just, it's not just improvement. It is colossal improvement that we've seen out of Kellen Mond. Um I'm trying to find because I have his touchdown interception ratio that he headed in uh, to the 2019 season uh, matchup with LSU. And I think it was, let's see, it was was 16 to two. And the previous year it had been nine to five. So I think that that's kind of this, when I go and try to illustrate the improvement of Kellen Mond to people with one statistic, that's what I always go back to just because it, it shows you how much more accurate he got and how much better of a decision maker that he became. And even through the years of watching him uh, just in games, I didn't have an, a true appreciation of how much of a dual threat quarterback he was just in the true sense in the modern era, because I was so hung up on how inconsistent he was as a passer. So I, I think that I was now that he's become a better passer, I've also just been able to appreciate the way that he finds lanes and he finds his way to the end zone uh, with his legs and the way that he evades pressure and really gets down the field more just because I view him as a more balanced, uh, balanced prospect now. Why, in your opinion, do you have, you don't have Kyle Trask in your top 10, but most folks have him right in this range in six, the five, six, seven range in watching Kyle Trask myself. And then, like you said, at at the, again, at the outset, that drop off that he had at the end of the year, 
I felt like he was playing above his um, ceiling at the early part of the season anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the come down was really more close to his, to his baseline than, than what he had done earlier. What, were, what are your thoughts on Trask in particular and why he's um, not in your top 10? Yeah, I mean, for me, it was mostly just he had that on the three game decline is what I call it. He had that one game where there were just some questionable things going on. He threw those interceptions. Not all of them were his fault, in my opinion, but it was just kind of the start of the nosedive. And I was like, okay, well, this is just, maybe this is just, this is a fluke. Like who would have thought the LSU was going to beat Florida anyway, to begin with. And then there was the fog in that game. And I don't know if if you saw it, I was there Mm -hmm. and it was terrible. And so I kind of gave leeway there too, because I was like, well, if I'm up here and it looks this way to me and they're trying to play a football game down there, like how well can the quarterback actually see his receivers and how is it impacting the passing game? I just in general, but then whenever those last two games happened, it was like, it almost just continued to get worse for him. And it was shocking to me because like I said, if you go back through my sec rankings, he was number one for me for so long. And I even kind of made excuses for him there toward the end. But then the more that I went back and watched those games and, just looked at him solely as a quarterback. There were just a lot of things that were concerning to me, just some things as far as decision-making, uh, just problems that I hadn't necessarily seen from him before. And then I think that just in today's NFL, there's a certain type of athleticism that you need to have. And he just, I, I don't really care for the way that he runs. And I think that he really only has the ability to be good as a runner and like very short yardage situations. And I think he does well with that just because of the, the power, like his size, like he's like six, five, two thirty nine, something like that. So yeah, like they keep comparing him to Ben Roethlisberger. And I'm like, no, no, not at all. No, it's not that bad. <laughs> yeah, no. no. Um, but yeah. And I think that just that in general, that kind of affects his ability to go off script because he can't, he can't, he doesn't have the ability to go off script for a team. And then the other thing that's kind of been raised about him lately just in some of the passing issues he's had is his lower body mechanics are really not that great when you really look at him. And so that gives him issues just as a passer in general, and especially whenever you're trying to push the ball uh, down the field. So just between those last three performances, I mean, he's got, he's really got to pick himself up. And I, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it goes either way for him in the NFL, because I think that he, I mean, throughout the season, he showed us just how high a ceiling maybe could be and the amount of potential that he does have. But I mean, there's, over three games to have that type of decline, just consistent decline over three games is extremely concerning. Like I said, whenever you start uh, looking just into, into the film and into the mechanics and stuff like that, and you start noticing these little things that you didn't really see before. Um, it's, it's just, it's getting hard for me to bet on him anymore. If I'm being honest. In your seven through 10 spots, you have Jamie Newman, um, Wake Forest, Georgia, uh, Ian Book out of Notre Dame, Davis Mills out of Stanford, and Sam Ellinger from Texas. Uh, The one that I'm really interested in in getting your opinion on is Ian Book. Um, He's a small guy, uh, didn't put up huge numbers, um, not the fastest runner either, uh, but what keeps him in in your top 10? Yeah, I mean, Ian Book is someone that I didn't spend a lot of time on originally in the season. Uh, I would keep up with him here and there, and I wasn't overly impressed, and I didn't really think that he had a righteous place in the Heisman conversation, because there was a point in time that he was kind of in that conversation. But um, I started watching a lot more of him around the Senior Bowl and a little bit ahead of the Senior Bowl, and then afterward as well. But I, I think that he's just in general is someone who's a little bit underappreciated. And whenever I was watching him at the senior bowl, whenever I went back through uh, some of the stuff that I was watching with him, I think that he is a lot more accurate. He has the, at least has the ability to be a lot more accurate than I think people give him credit for. And we've talked about him being a nimble and athletic guy. But um, one thing I was kind of waiting to see a little bit more of was, is he going to just run around and be able to evade pressure and get two or three yards and keep the play alive and avoid the sack? Or is he going to be able to actually become a playmaker in his own right? And especially on day three of the senior bowl, I, I saw him do that. I saw him uh, get a few good runs for some extra yardage, some notable yardage. That wasn't just like, Hey, I'm going to, the, the pocket's collapsing. Let me get out of here. Or let me slide or let me run to the sideline. So I, I just, I get the vibe from him that he's really that he has potential to be a diamond in the rough. But I mean, like you said, it is it is a little bit concerning when you see someone out there who's like six foot and 210 pounds. 
So the, the size thing, yeah, it's a little bit alarming, especially when we, when we look at quarterbacks um, in general, you want to see a guy that's a little bit bigger than that. But I think that he's got some stuff up his sleeve and I think that he makes up for it in other ways for sure. Um, Sam Ellinger um, didn't live up to the hype while he was at Texas. Do you see him maybe as kind of like a Matt Jones, Taysom Hill type athlete at the quarterback position? Yeah, I mean, I think he's a physical runner. That I can definitely give him. I went at a very hard time uh, going back and forth at the, at the 10 and 11 spot in my rankings between um, Ellinger and Trask, just just for a, a, multi- a multitude of reasons. But I think with Ellinger, we see a lot of flashes and a lot of potential, but we just don't necessarily see it consistently. I mean, as, as we mentioned earlier, I think that he's a good runner he runs with power another thing that I think that he should get credit for are the just the intangibles um Sam didn't have to come back this season and quite honestly I think that it may maybe in hindsight it might have been better for him to not uh come back this season to have opted out of the 2020 season but I think that's just more of a testament to the type of leader he is the type of teammate that he is and I think that just the fire that he has under him is infectious and it spreads to his teammates and it helps keep Uh, morale high and that's it sounds kind of like a corny thing to say but that's really important I mean if you don't have a good relationship with your receivers with your supporting cast offensive line just everyone on the team um, it's human nature people are going to work harder for and they're going to be more cohesive as a unit whenever they respect you and whenever they like you and that sounds I mean that's that's not like the a deeply analytical thing to say but I think it's a lot more important than people think because I can't tell you how many uh players and quarterbacks that I've seen and kind of heard of rumblings behind the scenes that people don't like him too much. And you, you notice that you notice that in the chemistry and everything else. But as far as things I like about Sam Ellinger outside of him purely as an athlete, and as a runner, um, I think that he does some good things mentally, like manipulating defenders with his eyes. But I do think, I mean, there are times he doesn't get the ball out quickly enough. And I think that there are times that I, that he chooses to run when he would have been better off passing the ball. And then I kind of ask myself, well, how much does he trust himself as a passer in this situation? And maybe that's why, or maybe he just waited too long, but I think that he's shown us the ability to be accurate, but that's another thing that he's been inconsistent with. Um, His arm strength doesn't really do him any favors either. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things to like, in my opinion, and there's a lot of things to hate. And so I'm curious to see just, how he manages to develop that. I know that he had uh, recently been reworking his delivery and that was something that we noticed and it looked a lot better there. So um, I, I think that he's starting to trend upward a little bit, but there's definitely still some work to do. Um, there's a player on your list um, as someone that you're looking out for that was a very surprising name. A guy got off to a, a very hot start. His <laughs> first start of the season was a record breaker. And then he just was plagued with inconsistency. You like KJ Costello a lot. I do. What do you like about KJ Costello? Yeah, I mean, I've I've talked to his high school coaches, I think like three of them now. Honestly, I've spent a lot of time on that um, in the past couple of weeks. But before I get into the specifics, just the overview I want to give is KJ brings everything to the table physically and mentally that you want from a quarterback. It's just, he had this really unfortunate nosedive after that first game. And really it just, it doesn't make sense. And one thing that I want to say is I think that um, Mississippi state had one of the youngest teams along with LSU in the conference. Um, You have a coaching change, you have a scheme change and you have the COVID off season. So you're severely behind the eight ball in just about every single aspect that you can be. And I think that it may have helped a little bit that LSU didn't have Derek Stingley that game. And I think that the secondary wasn't really what it needed to be anyway until about uh, the, the end of the season. But the only thing that I really knock KJ Costello for, because I, th- I think that his concussion had a lot to do with it. I think the 10 game season, the outside factors that I mentioned um, had a lot to do with it. But the only, the only thing that really, really bothers me about him is just, I've noticed whenever the pressure gets to his face, that sometimes it just completely starts to ruin his decision-making. And I mean, I've seen, I've seen both sides of that though, because I've also seen him play at Stamper whenever that wasn't uh, quite as much of an issue, but yeah, he had the concussion. And I think that uh, COVID exposure may have also played a role um, in some of those games that he missed. But I, I think that it sounds crazy to say because of the way that he, that he dipped um, after that game, but 
looking at just his career as a whole, I think that his accuracy and his ball placement has been mostly good. And whenever you go back through that LSU game in particular, he's he's throwing into some of these impossibly tight windows that Jordan Love is really the only quarterback I've watched against LSU that's been able to make uh, those throws consistently into those uh, tight windows. But I think that I think that KJ has strong mechanics. I think that he maintains his platform. He shifts his weight, shifts his weight well, and he rarely ever gets um, off balance. I think that he throws well on all levels of the field. And I think that it's, it's hard, it's hard to justify it just because of the way that this season went. But I just, I, I just maintain the general opinion that this is not representative of who he is as a quarterback. And I think that it was just kind of a fluke and, after I can't remember exactly how many games he played after the LSU game, because like I said, the, the injury and the mm-hmm. COVID exposure factored into that, but it's really a small, small sample size that we're taking and we're going crazy over it and saying, Oh my goodness, seventh rounder undrafted free agent, but get rid of them. I mean, this was a guy that was in the first round and I think he was picked number 14 ahead of the season. So I just, I don't buy into the fact that it's all his fault. And I certainly don't buy into the fact that he's, um, no, that he went from being a first round quarterback to someone who may not even get a chance at the NFL level in the eyes of some people. Yeah. He had a very solid resume at Stanford and then was, you know, also yeah. team captain. So his, his reputation was very solid amongst his teammates. So it was a definite level of maturity. This season just made it so difficult. I think for a lot of players um, that we didn't have, and and again, something you already said that, that coming back in this season, um, probably negative affected negatively affected more players than it helped uh, at, by the end of this year. I think um, some of the, even Justin Fields has to be a guy who figures he got hurt some. Uh, yeah. By the way, this season I, played out. I absolutely out. agree with that. <laughs> so, um, do you have any other sleepers that uh, you think folks should should really watch out for uh, as we head into this draft? Um, I liked uh, Peyton Ramsey out of Northwestern the transfer, I think that that was a standout season for him. And he took really one of the worst offenses in the entire nation and then went and won uh, a championship with it. So um, I, I talked to him and he said that one thing that he feels like he's, he's knocked for from time to time is his lack of making explosive plays. So he says that he's been uh, working on that, but uh, he was the offensive MVP in the um, citrus bowl that they played in. And he did just really good performance against a team like Auburn. That's not a, the easiest defense in the world to go up against, especially whenever you're Northwestern. So um, that's, that's a guy that I'm curious to see kind of how things shake out with him. And then uh, Felipe Franks, I think is still such a wild card. And it kind of brings me back to the whole just idea behind Kellen Mond uh, about Kellen Mond, just the way that he was able to make this extreme improvement and elevate Arkansas to new heights in a way that that school hasn't seen in God knows how long. Um, but I mean, with him, and crazy arm talent too. Yeah. Yeah. But the thing is, is that I think in the mental aspect, the thing that I do not like about him is from a mental standpoint, I think that he kind of falls apart when he's mm-hmm. under pressure. I think that his eyes tell all, I think he likes to stare down his receivers. He struggles with making the anticipatory throws. Um, and I mean, he's gotten better at going through his progression, stuff like that, but there's, it's, it's going to take a lot. He's going to be a developmental, very, very raw prospect. And then you, you're just going to have to trust that he doesn't dip back into what he was, uh, before he left at Florida, because I mean, that was a disaster. The end of his career at Florida was a complete disaster, but, um, I mean, I have to add this though, because I like <laughs> him as a person, cause I have one very entertaining comment about Felipe Frank. So I was interviewing him at the senior bowl. And I gotten through all my like basic football questions. And then I usually don't ask this. So then I think it's kind of cheesy to ask. And because I just, I, I'm so deep into analytics. I don't think about this sometimes that I was just like, what do you think that people don't know about you um, as a person or a player, just the general public? And usually you'll get some very just like vague, boring answer. But he, he told me, he goes, well, I like to read and draw in my spare time. And I especially like to draw dogs. And so every time that I go back and I look at him, I'm like, oh, he likes... He likes to draw dogs. It's just funny to me because it's something that you never know. No, it's that's one of those neat things that you pick up from when folks let their guard down. And it, it's those are the, those are fun moments in this job when you get those um, behind the behind the veil looks. Um, and it's so it's so pure and it almost mm-hmm. it messes with your head a little bit as an analyst because you go and you're making the rankings. And then I put them at number 15. I'm like, oh, I feel bad about this because it's so Because he draws like dogs. dogs. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, if you know people too well, that that's the finding yeah. that dissonance um, between you and the players. Uh, because yeah, you spend enough time around folks, you can't help but but get emotionally invested in one way or another. And yeah, and especially when you know how hard they work too. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, there's certain physical attributes and there's certain just elements that players will never have or that it will take them a long time to develop um, as that. But I mean, that that's just, it's, that's always been a hard thing for me uh, whenever I think about it. Because like players like Danny Etling, I have never seen someone slave over self-improvement as hard as that guy, but there's certain elements of his game that he just yeah. doesn't have. And I think that he's just kind of neither really good nor really bad just kind of average and it's it's almost kind of painful to watch them just work away at this and then uh, never be able to achieve certain things it's like perpetually being a triple a baseball player you're mm-hmm. so close to touching it and you just that whatever it is i can't hit the curveball enough and for mm-hmm. you know a lot of nfl players it's that one skill that they just can't master um out of the top five who would you say is your most likely to be an MVP and who's most likely to be a bust? Um, for the first one, I'd say Zach Wilson. And then as far as being a bust, goodness, this is hard. This is on the spot. There's always one Maybe, though. There's honestly, always, at least one of them I, will. I'm going to have to say Justin Fields. And I just, I hope that that's not on old takes exposed like in like two years, but we'll see. <laughs> but uh, again, this is just most likely. You're not guaranteeing Justin mm-hmm. Fields. So, so we're making sure that that's not good. That's not what you're saying here, that Justin yeah. Fields is a bust or will be a bust. You're saying of these five, most likely. Yeah. And that's somebody has to be that person. Yeah, it's unfortunate. It's so I think it you're, you're, you're being fair. You're yes. not being unfair. So, um, and I, look, the NFL needs quarterbacks. That, oh, I mean, yeah. that's just a fact of the matter. So you hope as many of these pan out as possible, because if there's one thing uh, we, we see is a lot of mediocre quarterbacks getting 15 to $18 million a year. Mm-hmm. And uh, we could use some more stars to that position. So uh, Chrissy, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Um, I think it was extremely informative. Uh, for me in particular, and I, I think our listeners will take something from it too. Tell them how they can get your list um, and, and your analysis and uh, follow you on social media. Yeah. So basically the only social media that I use uh, just professionally is Twitter and that's Chrissy underscore Freud. And the list should actually be at the top right now because I just released it probably like somewhere around an hour ago. But yeah, I do quarterback stuff. And then I have my women in sports series at Pro Football Network. I cover LSU and the Tennessee Titans at USA Today Sports Media Group. And then I'm pretty much quarterback focused at the Draft Network right now. So I think I think that covers everything. <laughs> Let me ask you something. And, and you just sparked this for me. Is that we've been, this last couple of weeks um, with Serena Williams and, and her um, husband wearing a shirt that says best um, athlete and female scratched out. And we've seen more attention being paid um, to women in sports. We've had these, these seminars, we've had all these, the conversations, but I still think in my mind that we do this almost as charity work. And yeah. as an African-American, I, you know, I think I'm, I'm kind mm-hmm. of, I understand that vein is that mm-hmm. we're acting as if women in sports is something that we should do because we should do it. It's a good thing to do, not because it makes the product better, not because there's a lot of competency, not because there's a lot of skill and talent out there. And I just Mm -hmm. don't like the framing of it from these partners, whether it be leagues or whomever, in how this is is like, I just don't like the framing of it because I feel like it's the same thing that was done in the social justice arena when we were talking about things with these sports leagues throughout the summer. And now we're in that similar place with women. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that it kind of starts with the subconscious because I think that there are a lot of people out there who appreciate the kind of work that I do and the kind of work that other women do that in-depth stuff. But at the same time, whenever you release something, there's almost, and and I can just feel it. There's just general feeling of, oh my goodness, this is impressive, but it's even more impressive because she is a 21 year old girl. And I think that a lot of 
for this to ever, the movement in general to ever be successful whenever it comes to minorities, whenever it comes to uh, women in sports, I think it's going to take policy change. And I think that it's going to take consistency, which is kind of part of the reason why I even started the women in sports series to begin with, because one of the problems that I noticed was that this movement, it's almost, it's about every one to two weeks, there's some big incident, everyone's riled up on Twitter, everyone's talking about it, everybody's behind it and passionate about it. And then two days later, it just falls off again, just kind of tapers off. So I think, I mean, I think I'm taking a very small step. Unfortunately, I don't have the the power. I'm not in the position of power that I think a lot of other people are that can make changes, but I just kind of wanted to give it a little bit of consistency. And I think that if we can all uh, work together on this consistency and if uh, consistently, and if we can um, just continue to read and engage with and reference uh, women in sports in general, that eventually, like I said, it comes down to the subconscious. People are going to get so used to hearing women as analysts and seeing the references articles and it's going to become commonplace and the subconscious is going to recognize that. And then suddenly it doesn't give kind of the charity work vibe that you, that we were talking about earlier. What can, and I'm just be honest, what can I do? And I try um, to, to do that in, in the sense of the way I book um, from mm-hmm. a pod, the way that I, you know, make sure that I retweet and, um, and try to read too, you know, I'm just trying yeah. to retweet, but I try to read too. What else can I do? honestly, as an ally to, to, to continue to amplify the voices of, of women in sports media and as athletes as well. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that you're on the right track. I think it's just gonna, at the end of the day, we're, we're all one person. So mm-hmm. I think it's going to take pe- like everyone doing what you, what you do and just consistently bringing on uh, women to talk about football. And I feel like that's the other thing too, is that there's so many people that they bring on women to talk about football, but it's like air quotes football and they're not asking them any real questions. Cause I mean, I've been, it's been a long time since that happened to me, but I've been brought on a couple of podcasts where it's just like, Oh, what was the atmosphere like? Oh, what do you think of this? And it's very surface level. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know if it's just like what they want to ask, which is fine. Like run, run your show however you want to. But at the same time, I just, there were a few times that I was just like, you know, I do know about football and I can talk about like actual football. If you want me to, that's on the table. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm not afraid to admit that you know more about quarterback play than I do. So <laughs> that's why I ask for it's people. It's been a six year obsession. That's the only reason why. <laughs> so I appreciate you. I appreciate your work and I thank you uh, for coming on again. Yeah, of course. All right, well, go take a look look at the list if you'd like to, and I will talk to you later. All right, so for Chrissy Freud, I am David Grubb. Y'all know how to follow me at DM Grubb on Instagram and Twitter and the website, hitpwithdg.com. And until the next time, this has been another episode of...